0: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
2: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: We've been best friends for 20 years, and we have two very important things in common.
2: We're both mothers to toddlers, And we both love pop culture. Basically, we've dedicated the best
0: years of our lives to watching TV and movies.
2: Oh, absolutely. So we thought, why not bring parenting and pop culture together in a podcast?
0: From ABC Audio and Good Morning America... This is Pop Culture Moms, a show where we put our obsession to work and figure out motherhood by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of pop culture about the fictional moms we love to watch and what they can teach us about parenthood. Oh, hi, honey. Oh, hi. You know, the Oscars are coming up, so I've been thinking a lot about one of my favorite movies of 2023, a true masterpiece, the Barbie movie. And spoiler alert, I'm just going to say this at the top for anyone who has not seen it yet. The gist of it is that Barbie's having the time of her life in this perfect pink world that is Barbie land. Until she has an existential crisis and it sends her on a journey to the real
2: world. Do you guys ever think about dying? Really? It's the most I've ever related to a Barbie in my life. (laughs)
0: It's true. That is true. And that's funny because just to alert the listener, we do not look like Barbie, right? Like we're more akin to Midge, if you will. And let's just say the Midge doll never took off. Now, let me ask you, the big criticism of Barbie dolls is that they perpetuate this kind of toxic beauty standard for girls. You and I both played with Barbies growing up. And okay, we have a pretty toxic relationship to our bodies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But how much do you think Barbie dolls affected your feelings about your looks?
2: You know, I'm sure quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Barbie is tall and thin and blonde and perfect. And she's really quite literally all the things that I'm not. Um, I have two older sisters and they are those classic beauties. They they are blonde like Barbie and they were praised for their looks, you know, my whole life. And in comparison to them, I always felt like, oh, They're so beautiful and my parents are putting me on the Atkins diet or, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard not to internalize that. Yeah, I hear
0: you. Um, First of all, you're perfect. Second of all, I, too, never looked remotely like Barbie. And I have to assume that they, Barbie dolls, that is, is like that they were one more message to me of what an ideal woman should look like. And that served as a reminder of how far away from that I was. The one thing, though, that helped to temper some of this toxic messaging was that my mom always, always, always told me that she thought I was beautiful. Like, that was her mainstay of parenting. And as you well know, Sebs, mortifyingly, my mother was convinced for a long time that James Blunt wrote his hit song, (laughs) You're Beautiful, about me. Okay?
2: (laughs) Well, it makes perfect sense, really. He must have seen you on the subway and just been oh, an, inspired. My God. It's
0: so it's it's the conspiracy theory that you just can't get to the bottom of. But I called her yesterday to remind myself of just how insane her theory was. And true to form, she doubled down.
2: Naturally. She was
0: almost it was almost like she was exasperated by even the question. She's like, Andrea, how do you know for sure that he didn't? And I told her, okay, well, for one, he released the song in 2004. And according to your timeline, he would have had to see me on the subway in 2006. And she just, to that, she simply said in, you know, her thick Boston
2: accent, well, I find that hard to believe. So I guess (laughs) we're going to have to agree to disagree here. Yeah, yeah. I do love that aspect of your mother's personality, though. She builds me up like no one else. Every time I post a video or pic of my daughter, Violet, on Instagram, her comment is like, oh, my God, what a star. Or I've never seen talent like this (laughs) with just 77 exclamation points.
0: She's very serious. And I think it's good that she's got someone else to spotlight. Yeah, we'll take it. I do think it helped me to hate myself less than I would have. So it's like, as mothers, you know, we can't really control the way the world affects our kids. Barbie really shows us all the demands and the pressure that society places on girls specifically.
2: You are so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough
0: but maybe we can balance it or offset it by instilling in our kids this sense of unwavering acceptance and worthiness.
2: I couldn't agree more. Because if they have a foundation of security, maybe it frees them to explore the world in a way we couldn't. You know, there's that scene that you and I loved in the Barbie movie, I mean, it made me cry and cry and cry, where Ruth Handler, the woman who invented the original Barbie doll, tells Barbie...
0: We mothers stand still so our daughters can look back to see how far they've come.
2: God, I love
0: that line. I know. It's about letting go of our kids at a certain point, giving them the freedom to forge their own path and be whoever it is that they want to be. It's the goal and also the challenge of motherhood, because as women, we've been contorting ourselves to fit into the box of what we internalize to be a quote-unquote ideal woman. So it's tricky to not pass those beliefs down to our daughters when it's all we've ever known.
2: Exactly. And once Barbie is out of her box, she cannot fit herself back inside.
0: Our guest today can really speak to breaking out of the boxes we've been put in. She is the star of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, a modern-day Barbie herself, Heather Gay. She wrote a memoir called Bad Mormon, where she shares her journey of growing up steeped in a religion and a community that prizes inner and outer perfection. And she's very candid about how she never felt like she fit the mold of a good Mormon daughter or a wife or mother, especially compared to her mom.
2: Heather ultimately got divorced and left the faith. And now she's raising three daughters in a way that's totally different from the ways she was raised. Heather is
0: also founder and co-owner of the MedSpa Beauty Lab and Laser in Utah, which we intend to visit and spend quite a bit of money at. And lastly, Heather and I share a surprising connection, which is our literary agent, Steve Troja. Oh, I love Steve. And there's so much we can learn from Heather Gay. We're going to talk to the one, the only Heather Gay after this quick break. Lumi is a game-changing whole body deodorant designed by an OBGYN to work not only on pits, but also on feet and everywhere else we get odor. No matter where you use it, Lumi is clinically proven to block odor all day thanks to its one-of-a-kind pH-optimized formula. And they've got over 275,000 five-star reviews to show for it. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, Two free products of your choice, like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code PCM at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code PCM.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear?
0: Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? Oh, my God. Ever. This is so exciting. (laughs) I am so excited. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled, too. Andy, I've been hearing about you since I met Steve. Really? It's funny is that I told him last season, we all saw him share an Instagram story where he's on an episode. (laughs) We were so
2: excited.
0: You're like, I don't know. It's just hard to share these personal details in a memoir. Like, am I really going to reveal that I've had sex? And he just goes, I think they know. (laughs) I think your family knows. Like, I think... They're already on to you. I have been watching The Housewives every franchise from the beginning. I do want, and I hate, I always hate revealing this, but Sabrina is not in the Bravo sphere with us. Like, she doesn't watch
1: Housewives. It's okay.
2: It's not from lack of wanting to. It's that now, you know, like... There's just too much that I'm so scared to start because I'm like, how will I ever catch up with all of these people? It'll
1: just reveal how little you know, you know, and how much more there is to learn because it grows. It grows and it's become its own, like, you know, entire behemoth. It's just it's so far reaching. I think it even surprised Steve how far reaching Housewives was because Housewives penetrates like every. Economic background, every cultural group like around the world, people all over, kind of, it's kind of this connection, this connecting
0: force. We should just dive right in, Serena, to her memoir because we just loved it so so much.
2: So you call it bad Mormon. Throughout your life, did you
1: feel like a bad Mormon? I felt like a bad Mormon always, only because it's just this constant quest to um, improve and perfect and you know find any any spots of darkness within you and purge them you know through dedication and service and prayer and um, joy which is like a big part of it so like if you're ever not feeling happy or functioning or if you're feeling like you don't love your family with you know eternal grace like you feel like you're being bad a bad Mormon because the bar was so high that it didn't matter how good I was trying to be. You always are kind of under that shroud of shame and need to improve because you're not perfect, you know, and perfection is the goal. So yeah, from birth, felt like a bad Mormon. <laughs> well, that's, and that's, I think that's interesting. I, you structure
0: the book, like it starts Bad daughter, then bad missionary, bad wife, bad Mormon, and it's just like interesting. You have all of these stories where you're wrestling with not fitting into what you think is like an ideal, ideal Mormon woman. If you could describe, like, what would have been an ideal Mormon girl, and then growing into adulthood, woman.
1: Well, I think in many ways, my life resembled, and definitely my family's life resembled, a very good mormon family, like dressing modestly, abstaining from alcohol, tea, coffee, activities on Sunday, dedicating, you know, Monday nights to being at home with your family, attending church for 3 hours every Sunday, you know, going to the temple, all of the things that we kind of cling to as like these rings of mormonism. But I guess what str- I struggled with was like as a daughter that was doing all the right things and wanting to be good, I still messed up. You know, I still did things that were bad. And I still wanted to do things that were bad. And then that was just where you start to look at yourself in this context of, if you want these things, that's an even darker road. You know, you, you shouldn't even want to be bad or want any of that. You should want to be good and to feel those um To feel your natural inclinations to be something that is only bad because of the context you're in is really hard to deconstruct when you get older and you realize, oh, that's a good person that's drinking wine. That's not like face down in a gutter, but is having a glass of wine and also had premarital sex. And they their marriage worked and they had healthy children. And the truth is, I just thought that if I followed these rules, I would never have to face any hardships in my life.
2: Yeah, it's so tough.
1: And the,
2: the perfection goes even beyond that because it's a lot about the way you appear to the to the outside world. And when your parents say, you know, we think you're acting out probably because you need to lose a little weight. My parents put me on diets all the time. Like, how did that make you feel to like feel that from your parents that like, I don't look perfect to
1: them? I remember like distinctly that moment in time when you realize that like, oh, you're not the prettiest girl in the room and the people that should think that you are don't, you know, and it's such a Imprint, at least such an imprint when you're that age and suddenly being good at things or being fun or being amenable doesn't matter because you're fat. I remember
0: feeling the thing of like, look, the outside world is already letting me know all of the ways that I'm not looking correct. So if you feel that in your own home, it's just, it feels like especially threatening.
1: There's never been a time in my life that uh, my weight hasn't been an issue and i guess there's a lot of sadness because i've been i my weight's been up my weight's been down and i'm of course keenly aware of how the world treats me when my weight is down versus when my weight is up
2: now the goal for me is that i don't want my daughter to struggle with it and you have three daughters so how do you help them with that especially now
1: cuz now they're on tv there was a part of me when I was that little girl and my parents said, you're telling hot dog jokes because you eat too many hot dogs. That <laughs> I knew that my parents were right. And I think that's what makes that moment so poignant in my life because I knew they were right. I didn't want them to be right. I wanted them to say, no, no, it doesn't matter. Be funny. Have a beautiful smile. You have a great face. You know, you're nice to everyone. That's what matters. But they really were right. And so I had been kind of, trying to overcompensate with my own kids, acting like we can eat whatever we want. We can get donuts in the morning. We can eat ice cream in bed at night. And, and the world will just accept us and love us. And we'll never have a weight problem. We, never, we don't have to follow the rules like the hot girl secrets that everyone else is doing. And that was the same type of disservice to my own children. Because the truth is the world treats you differently. And it's like, I'm really now trying to strike this balance where I want my daughters to feel absolutely empowered in their bodies. I don't want my daughters to feel limited by their body like I did. And that that you have to teach them that they do have the power to change it instead of it's just all genetics or you have to be a maniac. Like I really struggled finding that balance and doing it in a way where I could be honest about it because I wasn't doing it myself. And you want to model good behavior. And that's where that's, that's where I never felt like I think I'd tried to like have my kids eat worse than I did so that I could feel like I was setting an example. (laughs) You know, it's hard. Motherhood is so, it's so full of like, you know how it is. You want to set a good example, but you also are tired. I just want to watch shows and eat. I don't want to model good behavior right now.
0: That's the real hard thing is that like, oh boy, we also have to be the model of all of it. We can't just tell them, we have to show them. That's a toughie. I mean, all right. I want to ask about your mom. Did you try to be like her? What was your relationship like with her growing up?
1: I, I thought, felt like it was absolutely amazing. You know, I thought that she was superhuman. I cherished my childhood and I attribute everything kind of good in my life, like Abraham Lincoln, I attribute it to my mother. And it's, I think, Andy, you can relate, like when you write a memoir, sometimes for some people, just even mentioning them is too much, you know? But when someone's been such a huge fixture in your life, I really struggled to represent how my mom had imprinted on me what happiness was, what being a good mother meant, what being a good wife meant, what a good family looked like, what a good marriage looked like. And that was so idyllic to me that I, I wouldn't really accept anything less. Like my mom, took, you know, her whole life is dedicated to raising her six children in a way that I can't even fathom now. Only because our lives are so much more convenient, but also we've kind of given mothers a lot more latitude in how they mother. But when she was raising me, you know, she drove to us to every piano lesson, dance lesson, you know, reading tutors, extra activities. I was in like community choirs, like stuff that just added more to her plate and probably only benefited me. And so I learned how to be a great mom from her, but I didn't get to write about all of it because I had to honor that she didn't really want to be spoken of in the book at all. And the reason that there was that was a hard part too is like, I think my mom did such a good job of being a good Mormon that I don't really know her struggles. I don't know if she had hard times in her marriage. I don't know if she ever struggled with her faith. I don't know if she ever didn't want to do it because she was so good at pretending or maybe she really did love it, you know? Yeah. What's your relationship like with your mom now? Um, it's just distant, you know, a text for birthdays and Mother's Day and uh, Christmas, but we don't see each other. She doesn't see the kids really either.
0: That's so, oh my God, that's hard. That's really hard. I remember in the book when you, Called or after your honeymoon when you were kind of struggling kind of realizing like in the, maybe marriage isn't what I thought it was or the honeymoon at least wasn't and she's like well what did you expect that's like life is you know you have your expectations but reality sets in and everyone has struggles it was kind of just like chin up like you, not there wasn't room maybe for you to I, like you keep saying, like, be human, like, and to just kind of
1: share that or relate with your mom. Yeah. And I don't think she really had options. I mean, we I was the first person in my entire family, like generations to get divorced. Like I had like 50 first cousins and I was the first to kind of leave the faith and get divorced and do all these things. So I don't even think there was context. Like, I think my mom was speaking like from her soul, like, sorry, them's the breaks. You're married now.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the parts in the book that I loved is when you were talking about the marriage and you were like, I wanted him to preside and provide and I wanted to prepare and care. And like now you you're doing all of them. So isn't it isn't that like really nice to model that for your daughters so that they don't ever have to feel that way? Like, oh, I guess this is just how it is. Like, no, you you can just do it all. And I mean, Andy and I grew up with moms that were like that. Like my mom was cutting down the Christmas tree because my dad wasn't gonna. So it's like, that's such a nice thing that you can do that for them now.
1: Well, yeah, it's probably why you guys have been successful in your careers because I just never even considered a career. Even in college, I just studied humanities because art and literature would make me you know, a softer, better mom. You know, my whole second chapter is that financial independence and emotional independence for women is life-changing. You suddenly have a menu of options that were never was never even presented to you. Because my husband did very well and provided very well. So it wasn't like I struggled financially, but I had no economic or financial independence at all. If he wanted to quit and live on a ship in, you know, Puerto Vallarta, I was gonna have to raise my three daughters on a ship in Puerto Vallarta. We lose connection with ourselves when we surrender so much of our future and our lives to someone else.
0: Do your daughters I'm trying to remember like what that age would be. Do
1: they remember being actively Mormon? Absolutely. Cause we didn't, we stopped going to church when I started filming the show. So they only stopped attending every week and attending their weekly activities and being completely immersed in the community and immersed in the culture as of 2019. So my daughter went through high school with me like imposing the Mormon rules, you know, and my little ones, you know, my ex left when they were eight five and four. So I raised them independently, but still Mormon until they were like 16, 13 and 12. And so yeah, they remember it. And um, we'll attend meetings like for someone that's going on a mission farewell or returning. And they'll say they just get like flashbacks of what it was like. And then now that they have some distance, a few years of distance, they can, they're so much more appreciative. You know, they're just like, oh, I'm so glad that I Like, my daughter went to school today in a crop top with, like, her belly button showed, and every part of me is just like, nope, nope, can't leave the house like that. And so I still have to, like, bite my tongue and, like, remember, oh, no, they absolutely can if they feel comfortable, you know? And I have to deconstruct. It's really weird.
0: Yeah, like you're deprogramming constantly. Yeah, every day. Every day. (laughs) We'll be back after this short break.
2: You talk in the book a lot about your love of pop culture. One of the things I find so fascinating, I know we talked about Steve a little in the beginning, but Andy also has, like, an extreme love of Titanic. I am the preeminent scholar on Titanic, the
0: 1997 major motion picture. <laughs>
2: The fact that Steve has two clients who've written extensively in their life story about Titanic makes me like that must be a criteria for him taking people on. So I want to know, what do you think of Rose's mom?
0: And just as a refresher for those who are not obsessed with Titanic, although that feels criminal. Rose and Jack are the main characters, and they fall in love. Cal is the wealthy man that Rose is supposed to marry, and Rose's mom is this kind of uptight, pretentious woman who looks down on Rose's love interest, Jack, and really wants Rose to stick to this conventional path with Cal.
1: You're not to see that boy again. Do you understand me? Rose? I forbid it. Rose's mom... Like, I know that this makes me wacky, but, like, I have... Empathy and an affinity for these women that, um, that, because that I grew up considering womanhood in a very 1800s way. You know what I mean? Like, or 1920s. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I thought of our role as like, we keep the family together through sacrifice and martyrdom. And so I had an affinity for Rose's mom and like, I had disdain that Rose had had Jack and has a chance out you know like cuz you think well why why rose not me like i couldn't even get enough distance to like cheer for the heroine
0: that is so th- i didn't expect you to say that for some reason i'm imagining you identifying with rose but i it sounds like you're yeah i can understand I do a, now. a mild yeah i, do I know but now. i can almost admire like you're watching the love story but also like must be nice yeah, cuz
1: you kind of you kind of had to marry cal Right. Yeah, I, I married Cal. Yeah, and so and I and I hadn't married Cal when I saw the movie for the first time. But I sat in the theater watching it, and not even, not even drawing parallels, because if Cal was Mormon, it would all work out. That's that's how binary my thinking was, and I I only you know emphasized this to show that it's. There's a reason why Bad Mormons is an interesting book because it kind of helps people realize this. You know, drop by drop, this is where you get to where you don't even understand what is safety and what is freedom and what is what is happiness.
0: Before we started talking to you, Sabrina and I have been talking about how much we loved the Barbie movie.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh, I I wept. I loved it. It was like it was it was a huge uh, thing for me because it flipped that whole script on its head. And if you consider like kind of the way that my life has imploded and expanded in the last three or four years that I've been on Housewives, like to now see the matriarchy ruling and and all of this freedom for women, I loved it.
0: Well, there's such a parallel between your journey and the journey presented in the movie. Like I remember you saying one quote, you said, everything in my life confirmed my identity, my faith and my future until it didn't. Once Barbie is out of the box, out of this ideal woman, societal expectation box, she can't fit herself back in or she chooses not to. And I think that's like, that's really, I think you can probably relate to that in so many ways.
1: Yeah. Like just the fact that once she was out and she embraced those things and like when she sat on the park bench with the older woman and said like, you're beautiful, you know, you're so beautiful. I know it. And I felt that, like, in my soul when she said, you're beautiful. Like, I felt like she was saying it to all of us, you know?
0: Oh, my gosh. Was that, that, was Serena <laughs> and I just bawled, bawled, that moment. And you know what I had heard? This is, like, a behind-the-scenes. I heard that Greta Gerwig said that studio execs asked to cut that scene. And Greta said, to be totally honest, like, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't think the movie exists without that scene. Yeah. I mean, that's really as a woman, any woman watching, it's like that was that was the moment you say, "Wow, this is this is this is
1: this is hitting on every level."
2: And then towards the end of the movie, when she is with Ruth Handler, and she says, "Us mothers stand still so our daughters can turn around and see how far they came." What did what did you think about that?
1: And you know, what do you take into your life? It makes me cry right now because. You know, I kept saying, like, I'm doing this for my daughters, you know, to give them options, to give them other ways to do it. And you realize, just like in the movie with America Fair like, we're doing it for ourselves. And then that's the reward is to see them develop and become who they are going to be, the people they're going to be without context of a pre-assigned role or what a def- definition of beauty, a definition of success, a definition of identity that they, you know, that was really has been prescribed to a lot of us you know as women growing up but like for them they have the independence and freedom to just make their own way and i i love that so much that's like so we'll see i'll see friends now like and even like my fellow housewives like and i'm just like hi barbie and it's like just saying hi barbie to women i love it feels like that's what we're saying is like barbie can be an astronaut barbie can be the president we have potential that exceeds even our own imaginations did your daughter see barbie yeah they saw Barbie. They got had full outfits. We like cheered and cried together. And they, they're wonderful children. Like I feel so lucky. They say, like Ashley Instagrammed me yesterday, my oldest, and said, "Everything I have, I owe to you." And I'm just like, <laughs> you know they 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 have a consciousness and awareness of it because all of their friends are still living the same trajectory life, and we've stepped off that conveyor belt. And by Good Fortune and Housewives and the book and all of these other things and mostly the business. Like we're able to step off that conveyor belt with success, you know, and celebration and like moving up in the world. But a lot of women with children to step off that conveyor belt, it doesn't have that same benefit, you know. So I want, I want to make sure that like it's not just like the wealth and the money and the fame that has made our lives so fulfilling and great. It's like everything that they have. They have because I just told them that it was okay for them to step off the conveyor belt and to like choose a different way.
0: I think that's like uh, the best thing because probably every child at some point struggles with wanting your parents to accept you as you are, right? But it means a lot, I bet, to your daughters that you have gone through a transformation. You have faced judgment. You have found self acceptance in a community that wasn't very accepting of who you are. Like, I think it's very relatable to them that you everything maybe that
1: you're going to preach to them is something that you've lived. Well, I, that's I it's kind of been freeing as a mom because I, growing up, thought that moms had to be perfect, you know, like cry in the shower, don't cry in front of your kids. But I found that like the magic of my relationship with my kids has come through that vulnerability. You know, me being an idiot on television, me getting ripped apart on social media, like it gives them permission to mess up too. And so I think that as moms, we should kind of embrace when we screw up is like, we're teaching our kids that you can be an incredible person and mother and still totally screw up. That makes it easier for me to parent authentically because I recognize that there's learning in the vulnerability.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering like how your daughters have fared just since leaving the church and then being now public. How is that for them? Because you're facing
1: constant commentary from the Bravo sphere, right? I think that it's been hard and it's also, uh, made them more vulnerable than they probably wanted to be and brought more attention onto them than they would have chosen. When you establish yourself as different, it's already hard. But if you establish yourself as anti the dominant culture or anti, you know, the community, which I kind of forced them to do because I wrote a book called Bad Mormon in a Mormon world, you know, their teachers at school are Mormon. Their principal is Mormon. Their classmates are Mormon. Their classmates' parents are Mormon. And so, you know, you don't want to be a traitor to your community. You don't want to be a traitor to your friends. You don't want to, you don't want anyone to automatically think that your kid's the enemy or that they have to be on their toes, you know, and that is something that they didn't really ask for that I imposed on them. And so I think, I'm still kind of scared to explore it with them because what am I supposed to do? I can't get the toothpaste back in the tube.
2: (laughs) You are now a mom in pop culture. So
1: what are you hoping your mark will be? Well, I would hope one of my kids becomes like Ariana Grande and I can live off of them for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that answer, but I love it. No, I just think representation is important. And I watched and devoured reality tv just because i think i wanted to see you know see myself and other people and i think just that connection reality television really does connect us to each other in a in a really fascinating parasocial way that i love and so i think that as someone that's now been given this coveted spot to just explore my life on television i just want to represent who i really am and what I deal with and kind of just leave it all on the field, you know. Like I've I've been vulnerable now. I've stripped away like a lot of my dignity, (laughs) a lot of my and you know, a lot a lot of those things are out the window. And like I'm not as concerned about what I look like anymore because once you're called Shrek on national television, you know, you kind of give up like the ideal of like maybe I'll fool people into thinking I'm really pretty. You know, like it kind of goes away and it's freeing. It's very freeing to just have some distance between like what I look like and being appropriate or being liked and just being out there and recognizing that for the people that hate watch and the people that love watch, like you're representing. And if you're only representing for yourself and for your own children and family, that's enough. You are sensational. This has been great. I will come back any time because I have loved minute. I felt like I was just having coffee talk with the, with with my girl's backy. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Thank you guys. I really loved it. Yeah. Big kisses. Okay. Bye Barbie. Bye, Barbie. Bye, Barbie. Bye, Barbie.
2: That was our conversation with Heather Gay from The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Her memoir Bad Mormon is out now.
0: Can you picture Heather Gay as the next momager? Oh, man, I'd love to. The Kris Jenner of Utah, really. (laughs) I'm hoping for her daughters and for her that we're going to see the next Ariana Grande coming right out of Salt Lake City.
2: Oh, I would love that. I'm Sabrina Kohlberg. And I'm Andy Mitchell. Thanks for listening. Next week on Pop Culture Moms, we'll talk to journalist and podcast host Suchin Pak about immigrant moms on the screen and her own life as an immigrant, mother, and caretaker for her parents. Plus, we're hatching a plan to move to the Swiss Alps together. Pop Culture Moms is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. Hosted by me, Sabrina Kohlberg. And me, Andy
0: Mitchell. Our show is produced by Camille Peterson, Asala Asanipour, Sabrina Kohlberg, and me. Music by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Emily Schutz, Susie Liu, Josh Cohan, Arielle Chester, Liz Alessi, and Simone
2: Swink, the executive producer of GMA. Laura Mayer is the executive producer of podcasts for ABC Audio. Bye, Barbie. Bye, Barbie.